Today, let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, last book in the Bible. We find ourselves uh, as we're making our way on Sunday mornings through the book of Revelation. And as we're finding our way there, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be studying uh, in the Minor Prophets this evening the book of Zephaniah. Each of you are invited tonight at 6 o'clock. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. John writing, the Apostle John, that heavenly vision. And he said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to, into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let's pray together. Father, we are always so grateful for your word, grateful for your voice through it in our lives and in this world, and we pray that you would take all that is revealed about yourself in these seven verses off of the printed page, and that you would bring them into the fullness of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and into our relationship with you. Nobody can do that, Lord, except your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would help us to hear your voice and to experience your witness to your truth this morning in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, both chapters 4 and 5 constitute, uh, without a doubt, the single greatest uh, vision and revelation of heaven itself to be found in all of the Bible. And of course, when the Bible was originally written in the book of Revelation, there were no chapters and there were no verses. Those were added several hundred years ago for our convenience. And so chapters 4 and 5 constitute a single vision of heaven. But I don't uh, complain about the chapter division here because if you're going to divide it, they divided it exactly as they ought to have. And chapter 4 is a vision of God the Father on uh, His throne. And as He sits on that throne, uh, God is worshipped as Creator, the One who has created all things, created all things for His pleasure, and for his plans and purposes. The focus of chapter 5 is a lamb 
and a scroll. And the Lamb, of course, refers to Jesus Himself, the Son of God and God the Son, who is in this chapter worshiped for the redemption that He has provided to mankind through His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The first seven verses of this chapter, I think, constitute um, one of the most amazing scenes to be found uh, in the entire Bible. And that's saying a lot when the entire scene is in the context uh, of, of heaven. And it describes an event that we will one day see as Christians when we find ourselves in that heavenly scene following the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation period, God pouring His wrath out upon a world that has rejected Him, but not merely <clears throat> to uh, pour out His wrath upon the world, but in order that, <clears throat> in order that He might then, uh, is, is, is recorded there in, in chapters 6 through 19, But Revelation doesn't stop at chapter 19. It goes on to chapter 20 and 21 and 22. It isn't just judgment for judgment's sake. It's judgment in order that all of it would one day give way by virtue of Jesus' second coming, by virtue of the kingdom age of the thousand-year reign of Christ, give way to a new heaven and to a, a, a new uh, uh, earth. And so here... Uh, is this scene uh, of Jesus and, and this dramatic scene of the seven verses. And I think that perhaps the best way to examine these events is by following a series of four statements that are made in the seven verses. A series of two I saw statements by the Apostle John in verses one and two as well as the, the, their comparable uh, behold and, uh, and uh, in verse 5, and I looked in verse 6. And you might spot them with your own eyes. I saw verse 1, I saw verse 2, behold verse 5, and I look verse 6. Now, anytime you have a great author or you have a great uh, cinematographer or a great uh, director related to a movie. Of course, in order for you to write a book that anybody wants to uh, read or, or make a movie that anybody wants to watch, you have to develop a context. You have to develop a background. Uh, everything has that, uh, that, uh, that uh, the events are going to unfold in. The problem is, is that you never want the context or the background to become uh, the, the great focus uh, of the reader or the watcher of the movie. Uh, any book that was simply about uh, the background uh, of various scenes, uh, nobody would be interested in, in reading it at all. Uh, but you need a background in order for the story to move. And what the writer has to do is to provide that background, but then make sure that our eyes don't stay there, but they, our eyes are then taken from the next important thing, the preeminent thing about the movie or the book, and the next event, and the next event, and the next event to keep the story 
uh, moving so we don't major in the minors and minor in, in the majors in anything in, in the scriptures. And here you have boom, boom, boom as he lays out these things that, that our attention is specifically being directed to by the Holy Spirit here. And the four things are, in verse 1, a scroll in the right hand uh, of God. And then second in verse 2, a strong angel's proclamation. And then third in verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And then in verse 6, a lamb as though it had been slain. And so we begin with, and I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne, in the right hand of him who sat at the, on the throne, a scroll. So chapter 4 ends with the Apostle John's attention fixed upon uh, the throne of God the Father and all of the worship that is being extended to him as the creator of all things. And that entire scene does not cease in chapter 4. That entire scene continues on into chapter 5, except now as John looks upon that throne and all of the glory emanating from that throne, suddenly he sees a scroll in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And, And we know that the Bible uh, describes God the Father as spirit and that no man can see him. And as God the Father uh, declared to uh, Moses, when Moses asked him, show me your glory, the Lord said to him, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Jesus declared the same truth concerning the Father. In John chapter 5, and the Father himself, he said, who sent me has testified of me. You have, neith- uh, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. John chapter 6, Jesus again, uh, not that anyone has seen the Father except who him who is from God, he has seen the Father. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 said, God is spirit uh, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit declares the same thing through the apostles Paul and, and John. Paul declared in writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, describing God who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, uh, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power, amen. John, who finds himself in the middle of this scene that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 5, he wrote in his gospel, John 1.18, no one has seen the Father, has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. He says uh, very definitively in, in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. And, uh, and that's why in chapter 4, the Apostle John uses these precious gems there to express the glory of God that is emanating from the throne, but he makes no attempt to describe him, only his uh, glory. And he describes the glory that is emanating from the throne as like a jasper stone uh, or a sardis stone in appearance. 
Now, <clears throat> all of this reminds me of the story about a mother who noticed her six-year-old son was uh, deeply, deeply engrossed in uh, drawing a picture uh, on, uh, with coloring, uh, color crayons and a very, very elaborate picture. And so she asked her son and said, what are you drawing, dear? And uh, he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she said, that's very, very nice, but you know, no one really knows what God looks like. And uh, he said triumphantly, they will now. And, uh, but uh, the reality is that uh, he was engaged in an exercise of, of frustration. You might notice there in verse 1 that the word hand is in italics, which means it is not there in the original uh, uh, Greek at all. It is, it is added by the translators in order to help us understand the passage a, a, little, bit, uh, a, a little bit better, to make it clear. And I'm not complaining that they put a hand in there at all, but technically the scroll emerges from the glory of God the Father on the throne from the right uh, side of the throne. Now, the scroll itself is described <clears throat> as being written on, excuse me, inside and on the back. So scroll is what they used to write on in those days. And it would have been extraordinary to have a scroll written on both sides. And so the idea is that this scroll contains so much information, it contains so much detail uh, that it took two sides to contain the information and the detail. We notice too that it's sealed with seven seals, speaking to its importance. Uh, any scroll could have, uh, in the ancient world, been readily sealed with just a, a single uh, seal. And, and also it speaks to its secrecy, that it contains a message to mankind that only uh, God could know in order to make it known to us. Seven, as we've seen, is the number of completion uh, in the Bible. In other words, uh, what is contained in this scroll is complete and it is final. Again, the revelation is not merely or even supremely about a description of a judgment that is going to one day come upon uh, uh, the earth. Uh, it goes on to describe what will happen in the world and human history all the way to a, a new heaven and a new earth. And this scroll contains the complete and final and for the Christian glorious uh, history of mankind. Now, concerning the seven seals themselves, it's possible that the scroll was rolled up and on the outer edge of the scroll there were seven uh, individual seals put upon it to uh, keep, it, uh, keep it sealed. But it seems more likely in the description that's made here that the seven seals were fixed on the edges of the scroll in such a way that each seal had to be broken progressively in order to fully unroll it and to read uh, the scroll. And this, uh, this would fit with each of the seals as they're being broken in chapter 6. They're broken uh, progressively, and uh, the breaking of the first seal reveals a part of the scroll, and then the breaking of the second seal would be necessary to continue to read the scroll, and so forth. 
The scroll, as we look to the Old Testament to be an interpreter of the book of Revelation, the scroll ha has a very strong allusion to uh, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, where Ezekiel was called uh, to speak to the children of Israel in their very, very rebellious against God condition, and they handed, he was handed a scroll by God with a description of all of the lamentations in the morning and the woe that were to come upon them as a result. And so Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 9, Ezekiel writes, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And <clears throat> there was written on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, all of this then raises the question, what is this scroll uh, that John is <clears throat> transfixed upon? What is this scroll that is the single great focus of John uh, at this moment in this chapter and in this scene? Because obviously, whatever it is, it is of vital importance to what is going on uh, in this chapter. One view is that the scroll is a record of man's destiny, and that it's simply a written record of God's uh, predetermined plan for human beings and for the world. And so you say, okay, uh, fair enough. It is certainly that, but it seems to me that the scroll must represent something far greater than that. Because as we're going to see in a few moments, Jesus alone is uniquely qualified and uniquely worthy to take this scroll and open the seals by virtue of being the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, the root of David, church, uh, verse 5, and the lamb as though it had been slain in verse 6. Those qualifications point to the fact that whatever this scroll is, it is far more than merely a prophetic revelation of God's plan for human beings and for the world. Because the Old Testament is filled with prophets whom God entrusted scrolls and prophetic revelations concerning human history, including its end, and these prophets didn't even remotely possess the qualifications described here concerning Jesus as being necessary for the opening of the scroll and the loosing of its seals. And so I agree, and I would contend and, uh, uh, the, uh, with Pastor Chuck Smith and many, many others uh, as well, that the scroll represents the title deed to the earth, that it contains the terms required for the redemption of the earth. When God created the earth, it was His by virtue of creation. And then he, uh, he, God gave uh, dominion to the earth 
to man. He declared to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They were to tend it as a gift from God. But when Satan came and tempted Eve to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden that God had prohibited them uh, from eating lest they die, when Eve then gave Adam and he ate in disobedience to the lone command of God upon them and in disobedience to the command of God and now for the first time in man's history in, in obedience to Satan, uh, in contrast, there was a double action that occurred in, in that moment. First, Adam and Eve fell from the kingdom of God the kingdom of light, the kingdom of life, and they entered into the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of death and darkness. The second result of this is that the earth that was theirs, the dominion that had been given to them by God, was now given over to Satan. And they gave Satan a place in human history. They gave him a dominion. They gave him an authority in this world that God never intended him to have. And so Satan, as the Bible teaches, has control over the world today. The Apostle Paul described Satan as the God of this age, uh, the God of this world, even to this day, to this moment in, in human history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age, speaking of, of, of Satan, has blinded, uh, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Uh, Paul described uh, Satan as well as the prince of the power of the air who rules the course of this world. And he declares that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And when Paul makes that statement concerning Satan in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 1, Paul uses the Greek word cosmos, to describe the world that is under Satan's dominion, to describe the fact that the physical world around us was forfeited to Satan as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. Jesus taught the very same thing and, uh, in uh, John chapter 12, verse 31. He said, now is the judgment of this world, cosmos. Now the ruler of this world, cosmos, speaking of the devil, will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this, he said, signifying by what death he would die. To his own disciples on the night before his crucifixion, uh, John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world, speaking of the devil, for the ruler of this cosmos is coming, and he, that is the devil, has nothing in me. You might remember the interaction that occurred between Satan and Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. 
He had been water baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and then Jesus uh, went out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted there by the devil for uh, uh, 40 days and 40 nights out in that, uh, in that place before he began his public ministry. And one of the temptations that the devil came uh, to Jesus with, uh, one of the three temptations uh, was he boasted to Jesus in John, Luke chapter 4, then the devil taking Jesus up on a high mountain showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For, and for is a reason word, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. And therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And it's important to notice, when Satan uh, declared that he had dominion over all of these things, the earth, the kingdoms of the world, and he could give them to whoever uh, he wanted, Jesus did not dispute that claim. Because at that time, Satan was simply declaring uh, the truth. But when Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, died upon the cross for our sins, he was buried, rose again on that third day, he not only redeemed us from Satan's dominion, but he also redeemed the world. And Jesus brings this very thing out in one of his parables, the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus declared, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, uh, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And what is the field? It is the world. And why did he redeem the world? For the treasure that was found in, in the world. What treasure was located in the world? What did he come to redeem? The church. And on the cross, Jesus pur purchased this world and the church within it, once sold to, into slavery by Adam and by uh, Eve. And, and if we don't understand that, there will be a verse in the book of Hebrews that we, the, that we will never make sense of, independent of understanding uh, all of this. The writer of the book of Hebrews noted in quoting uh, Psalm 8 and in writing of Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that psalm. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 uh, he writes, and you, speaking of the Father, have put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus' feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not put under him, but, but now we do not yet see all things put under him all things put under uh, Jesus. 
That is, we still see the world under the dominion of the devil. We don't see it yet in subjection to God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is absolutely correct. But it is here in Revelation chapter 5 that the process of bringing all things under Jesus begins. Jesus purchased the world 2,000 years ago by means of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, uh, but it is not until here in chapter 5 that he takes possession uh, of it. He's purchased it 2,000 years ago. Now in this chapter, he takes possession of it. And it will be the close of the greatest close of escrow in human history. And we always want those to close sooner than they do. But one day it will. And so when we read the Revelation and we read everything that goes on in chapter 6 and onward of the Revelation, all of those chapters inform us how the world will be redeemed. But without the backstory that we're talking about right now, the backstory beginning in Genesis, we will never understand why it needs to be redeemed. And this is why it needs to be redeemed. Now, the second place that our focus is uh, taken to uh, in this scene, the second I saw is uh, uh, there in in verse 2. And as John is staring at that scroll in this scene, his attention is immediately drawn to a strong angel. His attention is drawn to the strong angel by uh, virtue of uh, his loud cry saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? That is, to redeem mankind and the very world itself. And you notice that the angel does not cry out who is willing, but he cries out who is worthy and who is able. Human history is filled with men uh, who have been willing but unable uh, 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 to do so, willing to conquer the world. We think about Sennacherib, we think about Nebuchadnezzar, we think about Alexander the Great, we think about Hitler, we think about Stalin uh, in, in, in this vein. But the question isn't who is willing to do this, the question is who is worthy to do this. Now, the response of all of creation to this uh, loud question that is uh, cried out by this great angel is given to us in verse 3, and the response to that question is silence. Pure, unbroken, deafening silence. Because no one in the entire universe No one in all of creation could break that silence. No one was found either worthy or able to advance human history to its glorious God-appointed end. Not an angel, not Moses, not Abraham, uh, not the Apostle Paul, not the Apostle John, uh, not anyone. Imagine being in that scene As you're standing there, the great question goes out, and then here is this silence. We don't know how long the silence went on. 
and, and, and then all of a sudden, the, silent, the complete silence until something breaks it. And the interesting thing is what breaks it is the weeping of the Apostle John on the scene in verse 4. He begins to weep, we're told. And the word for weep there means to sob convulsively. He could not stop crying. It is the same word that is used of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the comparative disinterest and unbelief of the Jews related to him as their Messiah and as he considered the terrible price they were going to pay as a result of, of that rejection and he wept over the city. And so don't take your eyes off of the Apostle John weeping in, in that scene. I mean, it's quite a demonstration uh, of emotion. It can make people un, uncomfortable. I would contend that one of the most um, impactful uh, kind of imprinting, uh, long-lasting effect uh, experiences in life is to watch a very strong man cry is to see that, that man, uh, under some circumstances, begin to uh, weep. And tears are their own language. It's, it, tears occur when a person cannot express the emotion that is in their heart with words. Words can't encapsulate it. Words can't communicate it. The only thing that can communicate it is the person begins to weep under the weight of, of that emotion, the power of that emotion. And here uh, is an emotion that cannot be contained, and, and yet it must be expressed, and so it is expressed in his weeping. Now, if I put myself in John's shoes... And I've been brought up into the glory of heaven by way of vision or whether he's been brought up there physically or whatever is, is a part of what's happening with him on the, on the Isle of Patmos brought up to see this vision. If I'm in that scene, I am wanting to uh, be the quietest guy that you can find on that scene. I am not here. Uh, I, I would try and be as cool as I can be, as inconspicuous in that heavenly scene as I could be. And, and no doubt he wanted to, to be that, but the weeping couldn't be contained. So it raises the question, why did John weep? And he's not weeping over the judgment of the world as it's described in chapters uh, 6 through uh, 19. No, I think that a far greater uh, horror gripped his heart and his mind. He wept and could not stop weeping at the thought that this world would continue in all of its fallenness under the control of the devil forever and ever. And then comes this encouragement to John in verse 5 from one of the elders who was present with him. And he says very simply to John, do not weep. And he calmly informs John that the situation is not hopeless, that there is someone who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals. 
And with that, the Holy Spirit then uses the next, verse 6, I looked to move John's focus and our focus uh, to the next scene of vital importance. And John then looked to see who the elder was talking about, and he tells us what he saw. And I looked, and behold, a lamb as though it had been slain, verse 6. And he sees Jesus still wearing and bearing the marks of his crucifixion, still bearing the marks of the price that needed to be paid for our redemption. And Jesus is bearing not scratches. He is not even bearing the wounds of someone who has been badly ravaged and mauled and and yet somehow lived non-lethal wounds, uh, non-fatal mortal uh, wounds, but he bears the wounds of someone who has died a very violent death, John says, the wounds of a sacrificial slaughter. And it's not that the lamb only appeared to have have been slaughtered, but rather that the lamb had been slaughtered and yet was alive before him, speaking of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then the elder describes Jesus to John in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, as the lion of the tribe of Judah and then as the root of David. And both of that, those are messianic titles concerning the Messiah to be found in the Old Testament. And what what was being declared here is that Jesus is the Messiah based upon the testimony of the Old Testament uh, scriptures and prophecies. The lion of the tribe of Judah, you might remember that Jacob, uh, who later was named Israel, and he uh, was the father to the sons, 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of, of his life, uh, he prophesied to one of his 12 sons, Judah, that Messiah would come through his bloodline, and not the bloodline of the other 12 sons. And, and uh, Jacob said to Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? And then he takes it into the messianic element. The scepter, uh, speaking of Messiah to come as a ruler, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." And Jesus was born into human history through the lineage of Judah. When when Jesus is spoken of here by the angel as the root of David, again, another prophecy speaking of the fact that Messiah would come into human history through the bloodline uh, of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge 
and of the fear of, of the Lord. And it is these three things that make Jesus uniquely worthy and uniquely qualified to take the scroll and open the seals by virtue of being the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, the root of David, verse 5, and a lamb as though it had been slain in verse 6. And thus in verse 7, with the full uh, omnipotence or power uh, 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 of uh, his horns represent power in, in the Bible, with the full omnipotence uh, uh, of God, uh, I, 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 of those horns in, in, in verse 6, the full omniscience of, uh, of God represented by the seven eyes in the same verse. Jesus then came, took the scroll out of the right hand of him, uh, uh, God uh, the Father. Now, the redemption of this world requires uh, both a lion and a lamb both a suffering savior and the conquering king. And so we return to what we explored to some degree in chapter one, but important to uh, revisit it here in the midst of this scene. At the time of Jesus' incarnation, coming into the world through his birth and so forth, some 2,000 years ago, the Jewish religious leaders uh, had uh, made their focus of what the Messiah was to be a single focus. What happened to them is when they looked at the Old Testament scriptures that describe the Messiah, they found two portraits. They found one portrait of the Messiah that described him as a, a suffering savior. They found just as strongly in the Scriptures a portrait that spoke of him as being a conquering king. And they didn't know how to reconcile the two portraits. They didn't realize that Jesus would come into human history and he would reconcile both of them in his first and second coming. And so feeling as if they had to choose one or the other, as the emphasis for describing to those who listened to their teaching the Messiah who was to come, they chose to emphasize almost exclusively the conquering king to the virtual complete neglect of the portrait of the suffering Savior. And what happened as a result is that when Jesus came into the world in his first coming as the suffering Savior, uh, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, was completely unprepared to recognize him as such because they'd never been steeped in that portrait or in those scriptures. And, and, and so many of them failed to believe in him, failed to recognize uh, him, even rejected him as Messiah because of a failure to take the entire revelation of Jesus into account in their thinking and in their decision-making related to the most important things in life. And even today, I think for us as Christians, we can emphasize one portrait of Jesus in the Gospels having to do with His first coming, having to do with Him as uh, the suffering Savior, as the Lamb of God, 
and then completely neglect the portrait of the conquering king in the Revelation, the portrait of the lion that is just as heavily represented here in the Scriptures. And the portrait uh, 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 of Revelation here and elsewhere also in the Old Testament that he would come and will come as a conquering king, as a lion. And to only see Jesus and to only understand Jesus as a suffering Savior, as a lamb, to only understand Him from the context of the Gospels is going to make us as unbalanced in our understanding of Him as ever they were unbalanced in their understanding of Him 2,000 years ago. It takes both uh, portraits. And it's not that the portrait uh, of Jesus in the Gospels contradicts the portrait of Jesus in the Revelation. They are absolutely complementary, but it takes, because it takes an understanding of both of those revelations for a full revelation of Jesus. Yes, He was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. Yes, He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day and more, just as the Gospels teach. But nobody should think that we have seen Him fully unveiled until we have seen Him as revelation reveals Him as ascended into heaven, as returned to the glory of heaven, as sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and as a conquering king who will one day personally return. Please feel free. Who will one day personally return to bring an end to mankind's sin and rebellion. And so our redemption and the redemption of the world requires both a suffering Savior and a conquering King, both a lamb and a lion. And thankfully, in the rough and tumble of this world that we live in, that is still under the dominion of the devil, in Jesus we have both. We have a suffering Savior, we have a Lamb, and we have a conquering King. He saves us as the Lamb, and He keeps us as the Lion. What a beautiful portrait of Jesus here in these seven verses, in this book of Revelation that is a revelation of Him. And sometimes all we can think about in our Christian lives is to think about Him as our Savior, in His role as that Lamb. And then we, we cease to deal with the world and deal with the spiritual warfare and deal with the obstacles in our circumstances with a boldness that we would otherwise have if we understand it, stood Him equally to be a lion and the conquering king. And so both of those things need to have that vital place in our understanding of Him so that the fullness of the Christian life is experienced by us and so that we can properly navigate 
this world as we await His return. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, He longs to be the lamb and the lion in your life. And He's the only one that is worthy of it. He longs to save you, and then He longs to protect you all the way into the glory of heaven. And it comes with confessing your sin to God, trusting in Jesus as your Savior, being born again, and beginning a relationship with God this morning. And if you'd like to do that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to pray with you and answer your questions. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. And Jesus, we thank you this morning. You have given us so much to celebrate in yourself. We thank you for the fullness of who you are and what you are and how beautifully this often neglected side of you has been brought forward to us today in your book. We thank you that you are our Savior, that you saved us, but we also thank you that you are a lion to us, and what you save, you are able to keep. You have thought of everything in yourself. Thank you for the sacrifice that was required for us to enjoy the fullness of this Christian life that is revealed in the fullness of who you are. And we thank you in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.